to another Space XBLR episode. So today is a very, very special episode. What I mean by very, if you're a fan of NASA, this is going to be a right episode for you because I have a, an unbelievable guest. I mean, this guest spent 42 years uh, in NASA, working in NASA. So we're going to be covering a lot of great uh, things. Again, the past experiences, the things he's he been working on in NASA, and maybe we'll get some details and insights what does it take for somebody just like you who are listening and watching this episode to be part of NASA or, you know, any space agency and how you can get involved with these space projects. So today we use Herb Baker. So Herb recently retired from NASA after, as I mentioned, 42 years of service. He spent most of his career at the Johnson Space Center supporting the Space Shuttle, Space Station and Orion programs, but also worked at the Kennedy Space Center and NASA headquarters. So his last position was servicing as the manager of the operations support office, which provided support to the flight operations directorate and included support to the astronaut office, mission control operations, NASA aircraft operations at Ellington Airport and astronaut training. So he's currently on the board of directors of the NASA Alumni League. And of course, there's going to be all these social media links, which you have to follow Herb. It's going to be LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and the rest of the social media. Everything is going to be there because you need to get in contact with this man. Comment and let him know that you love this man. And because, look, 42 years working at NASA, so I'm sure he added tremendous value to, to NASA, to the, you know, to the people all over the globe. So I'm very flattered to have you on today, Herb. Really appreciate it. So thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So, look, where do we start? I mean, 42 years, 42 years, that's pretty incredible. So maybe we can, we can take us back to the time, you know, because everybody as a kid has this dream, like most of the people that have on the show, they tell about being five or six or gazing in a boon, or maybe the parents wanted to introduce it, you know, mm -hmm. took, a, took a glance through a scope into the moon or to, the, to one of the stars, and they kind of, was it an entry point into the space and exploration? So can you take us to the time how, how you started and how did you end up being, you know, at NASA at the same time? Yes, and it's uh, not quite the story you might expect. Uh, but uh, yeah, w one of the reasons I, I, I spoke in terms of a life with NASA is, of, of course, even since I retired, uh, I, like you said, I've, I've continued to be pretty heavily involved with uh, things that are going on out there. But going back to the early 1960s, uh, my parents actually moved to a town that's called League City, just south of Houston. And uh, just three years later, it was 1963, when uh, NASA decided to build a, a center. The, it was back then called the Manned Spacecraft Center, where the astronauts would live and work. Uh, literally, six miles from my driveway at my you know the house I, I grew up in and so that was just luck right and so I was when I so 1963 I I, I, I I'll go ahead and tell you I was 11 years old <laughs> and so I, I think I was just starting middle school you know that year or the next year and so when the manned spacecraft center opened and the original seven astronauts and by that time i think there was a second class of astronauts that had been chosen too including you know neil armstrong and john young and uh frank frank borman and jim lovell and and some of those others in addition to the original seven 
And so they all moved into my community. And, you know, I'm, I'm living not far from some of them and, and, and their children were my, suddenly my friends and classmates in middle school. And so, you know, I literally from the time is just about as far back as I can remember, you know, going to school and being friends with the Grissoms, Cooper, Carpenter, Shirah, uh, Bormans, uh, Lovells, Staffords, still today, you know, thank goodness for social media, you know, lost touch with a lot of them when, you know, moved away and, and uh, life happened and, uh, you know, I didn't even know if many of them were alive. And then I joined uh, Facebook in 2009, I think, and started looking for, uh, you know, some of those old connections and friends and, and, and of course found many of them. And so now, uh, 11 years later, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always up against my 5,000 limit on, on Facebook, but uh, lots and lots of my old, you know, middle school and high school friends of, you know, astronaut kids that uh, uh, stay in touch with and even see some of them. Uh, Mark Grissom, uh, who of course is one of Gus Grissom's sons. I just saw him, uh, uh, it's about a year and a half ago. Now I haven't seen hardly anybody for the last year, right? But it was about a year and a half ago I got to see him again. So, so anyway, uh, middle school, high school, uh, uh, my mother happened to uh, somehow, I don't even remember, and she passed away a few years ago, uh, got a job with the TV networks. When there would be an Apollo mission, they would send a crew down from their uh, studios in New York and rent a you know mobile home, a trailer, and set it up on site there at the Manned Spacecraft Center and make it into a studio, you know, with the, the cameras. And that's where they would do interviews of astronauts and flight directors and, and anyone else that, that uh, they wanted to talk to or, and, you know, put on TV. And so my, my mother was uh, working for, uh, had a job with ABC TV. And so she got me a job. And so I'm, a, I'm still a teenager in high school. Uh, the summer of 1969 for Apollo 11. And she got me a job as a, as a gopher, you know, you might call it, uh, go for this, go for that, you know, just doing odd jobs. Uh, but my main job was twice a day to drive to uh, make a hundred mile round trip to Intercontinental Airport to put film on a plane to fly it to New York to the studios because you know, back then there was no such thing as videotape or the internet or anything like that. And so if you, if you filmed an interview in Houston and you wanted to see it on national TV, they had to have that physical film in their hands in New York. Yeah. And so again, you know, I did lots of other jobs too, but my main job again was twice a day to drive to the airport to put film on a plane. And so, you know, astronauts are coming in to be interviewed and I'm just hanging out in the, the, the trailer there and, and, you know, meeting them. And I actually, I did have, I, uh, and some of them were posted on my social media. I have several photos of my mother with uh, the, the TV talent that, you know, were on TV and, and astronauts like Pete Conrad and Alan Shepard and, and some of those guys, I, I didn't get any photos of them myself, but uh, uh, so the, uh, uh, and so I ended up having a job on site at the Manned Spacecraft Center working for the TV networks, not for NASA, 
uh, covering Apollo 11, Apollo 12, Apollo 13. I had gone to college for Apollo 14, so I didn't cover that one, but then I came back and covered Apollo 15. And then also had a job with the TV networks covering a couple of the Skylab missions. And so even with all of that, I was not one of those persons who grew up thinking, oh, I, I want to be an astronaut. I, you know, I, I, look, look at that. Isn't that cool? The moon and the stars. And, you know, I was certainly not uh, thinking about uh, astronomy or, any, or anything like that. And, and I, looking back on it, I think it was may have been in part just the fact that that was just everyday life. You know, uh, uh, I, I remember talking to some of my the the children of some of the astronauts and and you know thinking well or, or you know and hearing them give an answer to a question like well, what did you think you know what was it like with your father being an astronaut and they and their answer is a lot of times is well I didn't think it was a big deal I thought everyone's father was an astronaut <laughs> you know on the street I lived my next door neighbor's father was an astronaut and two houses down their father was you know and, and so, it, I mean, it was obviously still, we, we understood how cool it was and it was in the news and, and there were, you know, TV people around and such, but, but uh, you just kind of, you know, grew up with it. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I'm not, uh, although I've learned a lot uh, over the years, you know, working at NASA, you, you couldn't help but not learn. Uh, I, I, I'm not a STEM, I'm not a science engineering technical person. I, I went to, uh, University of Texas in Austin and studied business. And even then, even after I had gone to college, uh, I was not thinking in terms of working for NASA. Uh, you know, I, I thinking back, I, I think I probably at the time would have thought, well, yeah, if there's some way I can get a job there, I would love to. But again, I, I assumed, like a lot of people, uh, which is not true, that everyone out there is, is a scientist or engineer or a doctor or an astronaut. And so it, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. I, again, I'm working in Austin uh, or going to school in Austin and I had a part-time job at the Internal Revenue Service uh, uh, Regional Service Center there, just a part-time job to help pay for college. And so that's a federal uh, uh, facility, of course, and the people who worked there were government employees. And so the way you got a government job back in the, that time frame, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, was you took tests, civil service tests. And so I was working, I remember, I remember the day I first heard the conversation of some uh, women who worked in the office around me were talking about this test they had taken and how hard it was. It was called the Professional and Administrative Career Examination, P-A-C-E or PACE. And they gave you scores in six categories, uh, you know, or skills. Uh, and if you made below a, a 70%, they just didn't give you your score. You, 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 you just got a, a, a blank. Uh, and, and some of them did, took the test and didn't even score 70 on that particular uh, area. And so I'm thinking, wow, this, this test must be really hard. Uh, but uh, I decided to take the test anyway. And uh, six scores, I got four 100s and two 98s. And, you know, at first I thought, they've given me the wrong person's scores. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
that can't be me. Uh, but so and so the way the way it worked is after you when you signed up to take the test, you told them where you would be interested if you if you scored high enough and and a government agency was going to offer you a job, you got to tell them what area uh, or city or state you would be interested in working. And obviously, I put Houston because uh, my family was was still here. And so after the tests are over the company sends the scores out to all of the federal agencies and and if they see someone they like and, and the higher your score is the higher you are on the list of course and so if that agency sees someone that they are interested in they contact them and so so nasa sent me a letter saying hey would you like to come interview for a job here and i'm like oh my gosh yes <laughs> yes <laughs> and so Again, having grown up here, it turns out that the, the person I came down and the person who interviewed me when I came down to Houston for the job was the father of one of my high school friends, <laughs> which, you know, was probably shouldn't have been that big of a surprise, right? But uh, that's, that certainly didn't hurt my chances, I think. And so anyway, 42 years later, uh, you know, uh, what a, what a, what a story. And uh, uh, again, I feel so happy and lucky and blessed to have have been able to to live a life like that and, and grow up uh, and my high school friends we still talk about it how lucky were we to grow up at that time at this place uh you know with everything that was was going on so and that is beautiful i mean that's a that's an unbelievable story and i'm sure there is many many different pieces that were missing is, as you said, you know, making a long story short, but it's fascinating to hear that story because that's kind of, you know, it shows you how did you, you know, get started working with NASA. And again, maybe there's a completely different process now, and maybe you can yes. talk, talk, uh, you know, about that too, because I have multiple questions like through social media asking me, you know, can you ask again, Herb about, you know, how do we get like, how do we start working with NASA? So can we talk about this process? Is it a similar process right now? And again, because you mentioned, you know, like you were a little bit surprised that you passed the tests, which, you know, the question is like, is, is there some certain traits uh, individually people need to know or, or have kind of skills that would benefit them and kind of give, give them a little bit of advantage to, to make sure that they can, you know, have a chance to work with this type of agency? Yeah, so, uh... A lot to answer there. Uh, so uh, the, the the process uh, clearly is much different. You you don't take a test anymore, and, and even uh, much different than 10, 15, 20 years ago. Resumes, paper resumes, uh, no one uses those. I, I say no one. I, I really I can only speak for the government or or for NASA. Uh, you know now it, it's all online. Uh, and uh, uh, it's USA Jobs, and that's for, for all of the, the federal government in, in the United States actually is how you apply for jobs. And there, and there are uh, you know, a fair number of random jobs at random agencies. If, if today you went and signed on to you know, USA Jobs and, and you can pick again by city and I think even by agency, and, and there are, are jobs that are open. You know, even even today, you know, as bad as the world and the economy is with uh, you know the virus, uh, but I have to say, for 
for NASA, again, at least at least at the Johnson Space Center, and I think it's like this for most of the centers, they have uh, intern programs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, you, it's, it's, it's easy to find. They call them uh, pathways for NASA. If you, if you want to do a Google search, do a, a search for pathways interns. And it's a program where you have to be in school, but I think uh, even graduate, well, I, let me take that back. I, th I think for most of the time I was working, you had to still be in school to be to get an internship. But I think now I've read that they actually have some postgraduate. Uh, uh, I guess maybe they still call them internships too. But but the, but the bulk of of the pathways interns are are still in school. And so what they do is is uh, 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 and, and they do internships. Three, I think three times a year, you know, a spring internship, a summer internship, and a fall internship. And you, you obviously, uh, I think, I don't know if it's required, but you do, you're, not, you, you, you're not going to school during the internship. You know, you're working full time and getting paid <laughs> and doing real work, which is one of the things I loved about NASA internships is, is uh, and of course, the, the students we got were just amazing. You know, a lot of times I would look back, you know, uh, 30, 40 years in the past and think, oh, my goodness, if I was competing with these folks, with these students that we have today, back when I got a job, I, I wouldn't have had a chance, you know, just really amazing, uh, uh, amazing students. Um, but uh, so so it, it does extend your, you know, it's hard to, to get your degree in four years using the typical, you know, kind of uh, uh, calendar, uh, if you do an internship, but, but everyone that I've known who, who did that thought it was well worth, uh, you know, if you take six months to work at NASA, you add six months on to your, your college time. Uh, and so we, in terms of hiring new employees at NASA, I would say, uh, I don't know if I could put a percentage on, 90% of our new hires were through the, the internship program. And of course, like all other internship programs, uh, uh, the, the, one of the good things about that is that, that we get to, to see the students, you know, up close and personal, so to speak, you know, in an in a office environment doing real work. And they get to see us too, you know, the, it, there were a few times where the interns, uh, believe it or not, decided that that just wasn't what they wanted to do. And so, mm -hmm. so uh, but again, I think what I really appreciated about, about the way NASA handled that program is, is giving, you know, we didn't ask them to make copies or get us coffee or, or you know, do menial jobs. We, we gave them real serious, you know, challenging work and they, and they accomplished a lot of good things uh you know for for the agency so that was a still going on of course a, a wonderful wonderful program but again you know I, I, because i i get asked a lot too hey how do i get a job with nasa and uh, you know so the first thing i do is send them the links to uh uh the internship programs and, and other job information uh, but they you know they want to send me a copy of their their resume and I said, no, I, 
you know, if, if I had it in my hand and I walked on site to the, to the HR office at the, uh, Johnson Space Center, they would just look at me like, what is that? You know, why, why are you bringing that to me? You know, you, you need to go sign up in, you know, USA Jobs or, or again, you know, sign up for an internship program. And then once those, once you finished your, your internship, uh, uh, if, if, we, if we like you, we offered you a job. And of course, I should also mention, though, that in, just in terms of you know, working for NASA or supporting the space program, there are many, many more contractor employees, you, you know, uh, working for the aerospace, SpaceX and Boeing and, mm -hmm. and Lockheed and, and those kind of companies. For, just for example, at, at uh, this Johnson Space Center in Houston, uh, when I left there, uh, four years ago, there were about 3,000 NASA civil servant employees working at the Johnson Space Center. There were oh, close to 15,000 contractor employees working for NASA. You know, many of them sitting right next to the next desk. You know, the only way you could tell them apart is a small difference in their badge, you know. And in fact, most people would just say, I work for NASA, you know, even if they literally worked for Boeing or Lockheed, uh, they, they just said, I work for NASA and, and they did really, you know, but uh, that's not technically who their employer was. But uh, so all of that to say, uh, don't, don't let the, how hard it is or how hard it may be to get a job with NASA, stop you from looking and checking with, a, you know, uh, sending a note to, to the, the aerospace companies that, uh, that support and, and have employees working for NASA. Because in fact, a lot of times, and the companies were never really happy about that, uh, NASA, if they saw a contractor employee doing a really, really good job that they really liked, we would hire, NASA would hire them away from the, the company. And so, you know, those those aerospace contractor companies often would lose some of their best employees to NASA. But of course, in many cases that, you know, that's that's exactly what the, the employee wanted was to to get that that job with NASA. Beautiful. So that's beautiful. So again, I think uh, part of that, that everybody worked, wants to work for NASA, as I mentioned, there are different options right now private in you know private companies just like spacex or rocket lab or again you know if you live in europe there is isa or if you live in a kind of asia there's jaxa and isro so there could be a closer option instead of nasa but again nasa yeah. is kind of being this you know like yes. on a podium always like when people think about space and space agency it's always it's always nasa because it's always in the movies and it's always you know yeah. So I think sure. that's that's why it's on people's heads. But it's it's fascinating because most of the projects when it comes to space exploration are coming from NASA, at least than the, the, the most that I'm seeing, you know, personally as well. But the other question that I have from uh, people here on social media, very very important question. Somebody asked, does the cafeteria has astronaut packed food once you once you start to work in NASA? <laughs> no. Um... The the uh, the cafeteria just says it, it's just like any other regular cafeteria. Although you're you're very likely to uh, uh, see a, an astronaut sitting there, you know, <laughs> eating breakfast or lunch, uh, and uh, you know that 
if you didn't know them, you wouldn't know it because they're not wearing their, you know, a spacesuit or anything. But uh, uh, that does remind me, though. Uh, speaking of space food, one of the one of the many cool things about working at the Johnson Space Center, I like I said, uh, or, or as you mentioned, I I spent most of my career at, at JSC, but I also uh, worked at the Kennedy Space Center for a while and uh, 10 years at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. But I visited every single other NASA center. There are 10, 10 NASA centers, and I visited every one of them multiple times. Uh, and, and my favorite, e even over Kennedy Space Center, was the John if, if, if I get to choose any NASA center to work at, I choose the Johnson Space Center. And, I, and, and of course, I'm biased because I you know, grew up with it and worked so long here. But you know, we have mission control here. The astronauts work here. The astronaut trainers are here. Even the program managers are, are here uh, in Houston. But all of that, what I started to say was one of the, the, the other many cool things about here is, is that uh, they, they do um, make and test the astronaut food. And so the, the food lab, uh, which was just a, a short walk from the building I worked in most of the time, the, the last 10 years I was there, uh, if, if you had time, you know, they did it during the day and, and often you, you had a conflict or a meeting or out of town or something like that, but they would set up tasting uh, periods uh, where some of the food that they made that they planned to send into space uh, they would allow employees to taste test it. And I signed up for that every chance I got, you know, I, I, I loved doing that. And, and so what they would do is uh, you, you walk over to the, the food lab and they put you in kind of a, you know, a, a private area because they didn't want you, uh, you know, communicating with the person next to you and, and influencing how you rated uh, the food, you know, because you rated it on, texture, taste, smell, appearance, you know, like five or six different, does it, does it taste like you expected to taste? Uh, and uh, so they would uh, sit you in your, your little area and when you were ready, they would flip up the, the little door and, and slide a tray with the, the food on it. And it would, <laughs> there would be a little cup of water and some crackers because you had to cleanse your palate between you know, tastes. And then it was a little laptop there. And uh, again, you would you would cleanse your palate and then take a taste of whatever food it was. Uh, and then on the laptop, you would rate it again, you know, in, in those many categories. And and most often, the food tasted very good. You know, the, again, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, dif difficulties, I'll call them, with with food preparing the food on the ground that that make it different from uh, you know in, in eating in a space. Even things like uh, sodium, uh, sodium uh, makes uh, you know bone density loss uh, e even worse than than it would otherwise be, and so they really try to limit the amount of sodium that they put in in the foods. Uh, but but. Again, most of the time, the, the food tasted very good, and, and most most astronauts I talked to did enjoy the food. I, I, you know, that varies, like you might guess from person. I, I know at least one or two who who just I, I won't say hated the food, but 
you know, they, 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 they did not like it nearly as much as, as most of them did. But uh, one quick story uh, talking about that. Uh, so guacamole, uh, uh, one day I saw uh, the announcement that, you know, hey, if you're available at 10 o'clock on Thursday, you know, we're, we're taste testing guacamole. And so I signed up for it. I love guacamole. And uh, went and tasted it. It was terrible. It, you know, I, I, of all of the foods I'd ever tasted there in the food lab, it was the, tasted the worst of any I'd ever tasted. And so I rated it very low. Uh, and of course, I, you know, with the, the privacy, I, I had no idea how everyone else felt about it. But I, I wondered, am I the only one that, you know, thought that tasted terrible? And so the next week, guacamole again, and I thought, aha, because <laughs> they rarely ever did the same food, you know, back to back. And so I, I knew that I couldn't have been the only one who didn't like it because they were trying it again. And so went back and tasted it again. It, it was still bad. And uh, so, you know, a couple of weeks later, the third time they're trying it, you know, taste testing guacamole again. And so went back and it, it wasn't too bad that that time, you know, I, I, it wasn't the best I'd ever tasted, but if, if you put it in front of me in a restaurant, I would, I would have eaten it. So I asked one of the, the technicians on the way out says, why was this so hard? And she said, well, you know, one of the problems is, again, we, we don't use as much salt as we would otherwise. And anyway, to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, uh, about a year or two later, I, I happened to be on site and I asked the woman who ran the food lab, I said, what, because I'd retired between there, I said, whatever happened to the guacamole? She said, no, we, we decided not to do it. It was too, the shelf life, you know, as, as, as you might know, if, if you put it out, it turns brown you know, in a matter of hours. And so uh, it, even though the astronauts had specifically requested having guacamole on their food list, uh, it was just too, too hard to make and, and the shelf life made it too difficult to, to send into space. So the astronauts don't get any guacamole. Yeah, so talking about the food, I mean, like, uh, without going into detail, so was it like part of that was kind of synthetically created or everything is kind of from scratch organic like natural or have they used anything else to oh those? yeah you know I, that that's a good question i never i never they 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 never really told us uh what ingredients they used and again other than me asking that one time about the you know why it was so difficult to make guacamole taste good and and mentioning that, well, you know, one of the things is, is trying to limit sodium. Uh, they, again, never shared that with us. So I don't, I don't know, actually. I, you know, I, I assume if, if the general consensus is that, you know, organic kind of things are, are, are better for you health-wise, then they would be trying to, to maximize the use of those, you know, more healthy type foods and and ingredients than than uh, uh otherwise but uh again honest, honest honestly don't know i you know it's probably a, again a bit of a trade-off with with struggling with okay we, we want to make it as healthy as possible but if if we make it so healthy that it doesn't taste good they're not gonna eat it so so there's probably a, a balance they had to strike there yeah got it so part of that, again, because you, you mentioned that you made your personal choice, uh, Kennedy and versus Johnson. So the Johnson one, 
because you mentioned it has all these different places. So part of the like few of those places is vehicle mock-up facility. I'm just reading through it on Wikipedia. Maybe there's some additional uh, kind of you know testing sites are created. Mission Control Center, as I mentioned, so neutral buoyancy laboratory. That's part of the Houston also. So and I mean you you mentioned because you kind of find these astronauts just having lunch at a cafeteria, maybe passing them by in a corridor, you know, at some point, or maybe they wander off in a laboratory from time to time or different facilities. So any like stories, fun stories or interesting stories that you could share with us? I mean, through all these 42 years that you kind of see one of the, you know, famous astronauts that we know that, you know, it's oh, fun yeah, to tell. well, uh, uh, yeah, actually, I, I have a lot of those. <laughs> one, one that, uh, comes to mind is that I've always thought was, was kind of interesting. Um, there was a, a young woman who was just starting uh, her career at NASA. This, this, was, this was only about, well, now it's been six or seven years because I was still working there. And um, uh, uh, so uh, her name was Ruth. Right, and and so I was showing her around the uh, the NASA site, and we actually we walked through the astronaut the building where the astronauts' offices were uh, was right next door to the cafeteria, and so we walked through the cafeteria. I showed her that, and then I said, "Here, let's walk into Building Four South, which is where the astronauts are." And I said, "You you you, ne you never know. You might." run into one uh, coming down the elevator uh, or in the hallway, something like that. So we, we walk into the, the building and standing there by the elevators and, and the elevator comes down and the door opens and Tracy Cal Caldwell Dyson, I don't know if you know her, she's one of the you know, US astronauts. In fact, my favorite photo, I think, of in the space station is, is Tracy Caldwell Dyson. Uh, hovering in the the uh, uh, oh now I'm forgetting what they even call it uh, where they the viewing area where they look out uh, through the windows um, uh, and and see the the best view of of so space at the, the cupola cupola yes, yes cupola yeah. thank you <laughs> and so so anyway the the door is open and Tracy. Caldwell Dyson steps out and I start to whisper to Ruth, hey, that's Tracy Caldwell Dyson. And, and, and before I can even say that, she says, Tracy. And Tracy says, Ruth. And I'm like, what, what just happened here? <laughs> and so just pure coincidence, it had just happened that a couple of years later that they had sat next to each other at some you know, conference or event, and they knew each other already, you know, but I thought, what are the chances of, of all of the astronauts in this building that, that are going to come down and, and run into us at the elevator that, that she knows her? And uh, um, I, one other one that, that, that comes to mind, uh, I was in the, the lobby, uh, I was headed to a meeting, and I was in the lobby of Building 30, which is the Mission Control Building, and I walked into the uh, walked into the lobby and was about to head down the hallway to towards where my meeting was, and I saw Scott Kelly uh, standing there. This was I think at, 
after he had come back from his year long mission. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I wonder why he's here. I think I'll, I think I'll just hang out for a while and, and uh, see, you know, if I can tell what's going on. And so a minute or two later, uh, Jessica Meir walks in. And of course, she was one of the two uh, astronauts who did the first all female spacewalk with Christina Cook. And so now there's Scott Kelly and Jessica Meir standing there in the lobby. And of course, now I'm thinking, oh, heck, I have, I have to go to my meeting. And so I, I went to my meeting and I found out later that just soon after I left, Jim Lovell walked in the door. And the reason they were there was they were meeting in the lobby to go upstairs to the Apollo mission control room for a, a filming of a, a PBS public broadcasting system uh, feature on you know, three generations of astronauts, the, the oldest Jim Lovell you know, kind of the, the, the current Scott Kelly and then the brand new Jessica Meir. And so I, I, I did, I watched the, the interview on YouTube later, but that was, that was uh, one of the interesting ones. Um, uh, so that is awesome. Anyway, that's probably good enough. I, 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 I could come up with some more, but. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, but that is awesome. I love the fact that you're still, you know, working all these 42 plus years in NASA and you still like, when you meet those people, you know, in the corridors, you're still like, oh my God, look, oh, look there's oh, those people, you know? Oh, it, it never gets old. You know, I, yeah. I'm actually, what I would say, you know, good friends with a couple of them. And, and I've met, either met, worked with, uh, you know, almost almost everyone that's ever worked at NASA. I mean, again, literally back to the original seven, uh, some of them who've walked on the moon. And, and, um, uh, and, and so actually, uh, you know, I, I've, I've met and talked with uh, of the, so they just picked, was it 16, eight men or, or 18? Maybe it was, it was 18 nine men and nine women for the Artemis team, of which from that group of 18 will be the next people on the moon. And so the first woman on the moon will be one of those nine. And I, I know three of them pretty well, you know? So, so you know, I, I would never show any, any favoritism or anything, but I, I, you know, I'm kind of personally hoping, wow, I hope one of those three, you know, it gets to be the first woman on the moon you know how how cool is that that going to be exactly but but yeah I, I you know like what they call it fangirling or fanboy yeah i i, I to the day i die I, you know even though i've i've been i i dated an astronaut's daughter back in high school you know wow. it, it just for a couple of you know dates and it never turned into anything but so uh, you know I, I to the day i die i will never get uh, tired of of you know understanding and, and enjoying how cool it is to to yeah. be around and hang out with astronauts exactly exactly so they, they, it's exactly the same for me for the people who are watching or listening to this episode and the rest of the people who are kind of obsessed and have the passion towards space and exploration and again to all these people that are working in all these different agencies because these people the astronauts for us is just like rock stars for the you know everybody people you know for, for yes. the ones that don't care about the space science so for us those people are rock stars <laughs> because you know like who else can like walk in a space you know and uh, like one like it, it's crazy like the stories so i watched actually the scott kelly's documentary it was um where you know where he spent 340 days in space mm -hmm. so i watched the documentary so it's, it's pretty insane i mean the 
kind of the, the, the entire schedule that they go through and how intense it is, the, so the training and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot, you know, for people to, to handle right now because the threshold is really high for people if you, they want to become, you know, an astronauts for now. And maybe, oh. you know, you would like to touch on that uh, while we're going to be transitioning because I want to talk about Apollo, you know, 11 and the Artemis mission that yeah. you mentioned. But talking about this kind of having a high threshold for, you know, for people to become an astronaut. And one of the things that we are looking forward to is creating the moon base and again with Artemis missions and flying to Mars and, you know, colonizing Mars, maybe I'm not a big fan of the word colonize, but, mm -hmm. you know, is, is living on the on the other planet. Right. So that means with that, it has to be a little bit lower. So do you see that? I mean, what potential problems we could be facing with kind of lowering it, you know, and what's possible ways people we as people can prepare for those future, maybe for a younger generation? you know, that I would like to kind of fly to Mars and maybe there, live there full time. So how I can pre prepare myself and my body physically, mentally, so I can make that transition from Earth to, to Mars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you could get a much better answer from a, a physician or a doctor or, or something like that. But, but I guess I will say, uh, speaking of becoming an astronaut, uh, I, re I remember Oh gosh, 2016, I guess that class. There's been another class since, but uh, we we made the announcement, and I I was uh, I, I attended every every Monday morning the director of flight operations, who uh, you know you know was the the manager the director for the entire astronaut office, astronaut training, mission control, aircraft operations, all of that. He had a big staff meeting every Monday morning and, uh, you know, went around the room uh, uh, and, and not like some companies, you know, just talking about what happened during the previous week, you know, there was still work over the weekend, you know, uh, mission control works 24 seven. And so, uh, you know, sometimes things would happen on a Saturday or a Sunday, but, but anyway, again, the, the, the point was there's this big uh, status meeting every Monday morning at, at 7.30 before most other activities started around 8 o'clock. And so I, I was at that meeting every Monday morning. And so I remember this one morning we uh, we uh, were talking about the astronaut uh, uh, you know, applications and how we had nine something like nine thousand applications this one monday morning and there was still another week to go and that was the most applications we had ever gotten and i i think then then the next week the the application period closed and they we were meeting again and someone mentioned that we had eighteen thousand three hundred applications more than twice what we had ever received before. And of course, to be honest though, part of that was that, you know, even that, and I know a lot of astronauts talk about how, yeah, I remember having to fill out a, a form with a pencil, you know, and now it's all, it's all online. And so uh, what I started to say about, to be honest, I'm sure that some percentage of those were people who had no intention or expectation of ever being selected. They just wanted to go through the process and get their, their response back from NASA, you know, thank you for your application, but uh, you know, you you didn't make it. Yeah. 
but anyway, so then some some short time after that, well, not short time, it was a few months, I, I pull up to the meeting or to the building that early Monday morning uh, to head into the uh, Monday morning staff meeting and a, and a, a van uh, or, or two vans uh, pull up not far down from me in the parking lot and like 12 people get out and they're just laughing and joking and smiling and having a good time. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, don't these people realize it's 7.15 on a Monday morning? How could they be so happy? You know, what, what's, what, is the, what are they smiling about and laughing about? Well, it turned out that they were the first group of 12 people who had been selected as potential astronaut candidates who had shown up to be there for their interviews. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, now I understand why they were all in such a good mood, right? Uh, but, but the other thing is, and, and I even, you know, get asked that a lot, and, and I know I hear astronauts talking about how they're constantly asked about, you know, how do I become an astronaut? You know, what, what course should I take? What, what should I major in, in in college? And there is, there's no answer for that. I, I, mean, I mean, there's no, you know, magical or, or perfect answer for that. You can't say, well, you should study this. You should, the answer is you need to pick something that, that you're interested in and you're passionate about because, you know, the chances of being selected as an astronaut are really, really, really slim. And you should absolutely not, you know, go to college and study something you're really not interested in just because you think that's going to help you get selected. And then if you're not selected, you know, you're stuck. So anyway, again, the, the, the answer is, like I started to say, is you need to find something that you enjoy, you like, you're good at, you're passionate about, and, and, and study that. Don't think about it in terms of, oh, I need to do this because that's going to check my box for, for being selected as, as an astronaut. That's just a total waste of time. Because, you know, uh, and another thing they, they look for is, is, you know, outside activities, <clears throat> skydiving or scuba diving or mountain climbing or, you know, they, they want to, uh, again, see that, that uh, you have, you know, multiple talents for, for lack of a, a better word. And, yeah. and also how you get along with other people because, you know, certainly in the space station. And, and like you said, colonization or, or, or the trip to wherever you're going to colonize, you know, to Mars, uh, the whole human and personal interaction thing is, is going to be a, a significant issue. Uh, you know, being stuck in a small area with uh, a small number of people for an extended period of time. So, uh, mm -hmm. Got it. So, so this is a very great advice because, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of people would love to be an astronaut, but probably they don't figure out like how much work actually goes into it. I mean, you know, anything that you want to be obsessed about, it has to become your life. It's not, it's not something that you do five days a week and you have two days off. I mean, it's constantly, it's, you, mm -hmm. you become it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it cannot be like you, you, you're watching Netflix, you know, in your spare time, and it doesn't matter if it's space documentaries, and then you mm -hmm. apply for NASA, oh, look, I want to be an astronaut. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't work that way. Like, it, you have yeah. to give your life away for, for, for this, basically. 
but yeah. but the rewards you know it's like as far as i've seen from documentaries is just being a rock star among, among the other scientists and people who have the passion mm -hmm. it's definitely worth it but as you said you know that the chances yeah. are very very slim but it's doable it's definitely yes. doable yes yes they, they are going to choose someone yeah exactly. <laughs> and it is and of course that it's even different back in the early days they were all males and they were mostly military and pilots and and of course now it's, it's generally about 50 50 you know males and females and and all kinds of uh <clears throat> different backgrounds uh you know it's not just military or pilots or i mean they do need some pilots uh in fact that was that was one funny story i, I remember having a, <clears throat> a chat with an astronaut who was a pilot and they someone asked him if he ever got to do a spacewalk <laughs> and and I guess I'd never really thought about it, but he said, oh, no, 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 that they wouldn't let the pilots go outside the spaceship because they wanted to make sure there was going to be somebody there to to, to land the, the shuttle when we, you know, headed back home. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, we, we never, we, we almost lost an astronaut on a spacewalk once, but otherwise, you know, never, that was never a problem. But I thought, yeah, that, they they would not allow a, a shuttle pilot to go on a spacewalk if, if you are on a mission. You, you had to stay inside if you were a pilot. Mm -hmm. So there is a pilot and there is a co-pilot also? Well, that's an interesting point. Actually, no, there's, and a lot of people don't realize that there's a command, <clears throat> you, you know, no one wanted to be a co-pilot, mm -hmm. so they didn't have a co-pilot. So what they did was they changed the nomenclature to what would have been the co-pilot to the pilot. But the person, the pilot who actually flew the shuttle was the commander. So there was, so instead of a pilot and co-pilot, you had a commander and pilot, but it was the commander who had the, the wheel. Got it, got it. Okay, so talking about those missions, because that's very interesting. Again, we're talking about, because I mentioned, I want to, you know, discuss a little bit, you know, July 20th, 1969, for the people, you know, that's Apollo mission, and you, you're part of that, you've been kind of seeing that with the ABC TV that you worked at the time, you covered that again, uh, 11, 12 and 13, three of these, right? So uh -huh. can you can you take us back to the time, again, you working with that and having this, because again, personally being 30 years old, and I'm sure a lot of the audience never seen, you know, a moon landing before. So can you talk about your personal experience and how the ways that it impacted personally? Well, um, you know, I, I still remember, <clears throat> Um, speaking of that, and, and, and some of the things that I, I remember very vividly from, you know, literally 50 years ago, when they actually landed on the moon, I was in my car driving to the airport, <laughs> having to listen to it on the radio. You know, I felt kind of cheated that, you know, here I am covering the, the moon landing for Apollo 11, uh, for ABC at the Manned Spacecraft Center, and I'm in my car on the freeway, you know, so I had to, to listen to the actual landing broadcast on the radio, but I was at home uh, watching, you know, sitting in front of my TV, like millions and millions of other people, when they showed the video of uh, Neil Armstrong stepping down out, out of the, the uh, lunar module. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think we all, almost everyone had to realize what a significant moment in history that was. Um, 
Uh, yeah, you know, but uh, uh, it, it, again, it's funny that there are there are some things. I, I can tell you another story about moon landing. I, I wasn't. I don't know if you wanted to to go through the the you know missions one by one, but I have an Apollo twelve story. Please. Uh, that I, I remember sp speaking about remembering things vividly. So, so uh, oh, well, and, and so let me back up. I think a lot of people don't realize that Armstrong and Collins were on, literally on the surface of the moon for less than 24 hours. You know, it was like, I don't know, 22 hours or something like that. And they only did one spacewalk and it wasn't much further than, you know, 30 or 40 feet. Uh, you know, in in the later missions, they had a, a rover, and so they you know drove you know a fair distance away. But Armstrong and Collins were there for just a few hours, and didn't go very far from the the lunar module. And I guess I I had forgotten that until you know at some point years ago I was reading about it and I thought, wow, that's right. That's you know you think if you if you're going to the moon, you're going to stay a while. Right, uh, or, 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 or explore a little more, but no, it was very, very short period there. And, and actually part of the, that, that problem, I think was just a limited amount of oxygen they, they had, but, uh, but anyway, so for Apollo 12, uh, Pete Conrad, Alan Bean uh, were the uh, third and fourth guys to walk on the moon. Uh, and I think so it was Conrad Bean and, and Dick Gordon, I think was the third astronaut. And so, you know, most of the interviews that uh, were filmed there in the, the studio uh, on site for ABC were shown nationally. But for Apollo 12, when they splashed down, they wanted, uh, you know, just a local human interest for, for the Houston area. Uh, video of the family, Pete Conrad's family, sitting in their living room watching the splashdown, as they called it. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm always surprised people say, what's a splashdown? Well, that's what, you know, that's when the capsule returned to Earth and splashed down into the ocean. That's what they called a splashdown. And so they, the Pete Conrad family was watching on their TV set in their living room when the splashdown occurred, and they wanted video or not video they wanted film of that for a local tv station so they sent me and a cameraman over there so i was in pete conrad's living room with his family watching their tv when apollo 12 splashed down into the south pacific in november 1969 at the end of their mission and i still remember i could draw you a picture of where the sofa was where the TV was, where I was standing, and then the hallway to the dining room where the cameraman and I walked after the, we finished filming. And I remember he had a dark bag and he put the, the, the camera into the, the bag and took the film out so it wouldn't be exposed to light and put the film in a canister and took the canister out and handed it to me. And I drove back to across the street from the Manned Spacecraft Center. There was a helicopter waiting for me. To they were in that big of a hurry to get the film to the local TV station in downtown Houston, which was you know 25 miles away. And so I got in the helicopter. I'd never been in a helicopter. And this is again, this is you know November 1969. And I was you know 
and this guy takes off in that helicopter. He's going, you know, what seemed like 200 miles an hour, just barely over the power lines, you know, and down the freeway. And I'm hanging on for dear life. And he said, yeah, I just got back from Vietnam. I, you know, was flying missions over, over there in the war. And I'm like, whoa, thank goodness nobody's shooting at us. Um, and, I, and so I still remember there was no helipad. And so he had to land in an open area across like a six lane freeway. And I had to run across that, you know, obviously I had to pick a time when there was no traffic coming, but, but I remember running across that six lane freeway with my film canister. I remember walking in the door and over on the right, there was a, a you know, a desk and there was a woman standing there. She knew I was coming, she was waiting for me. And I remember handing that film canister to her. And then I don't remember anything. <laughs> after that. I mean, again, I remember everything leading up to that like it was yesterday. And then it was almost as if I guess the adrenaline just and I don't even remember the helicopter right home. But uh, so that that's my favorite Apollo 12 so, story. So personally, why do you think that Apollo 12 again stood up from the rest of the again missions for you personally? Oh, well, well of course, you know, one thing <laughs> was I don't know if you remember, but Apollo 12 was struck by lightning when it launched and they lost all of the, the data in, in mission control. The, uh, the data, you know, their screens just pretty much went blank. And for a while, no, no one knew what happened. And uh, the flight director, Jerry Griffin, at one point, because they only, I mean, and, and this rocket's, you know, headed to space and there's no way it's going to stop, right? <clears throat> and, but they had about an hour's worth of backup batteries in, in the, uh, the command module where the, the three astronauts were. But they were thinking that they, if they didn't figure out how to correct whatever had happened, they would have to <clears throat> abort by blowing the astronauts away from the rocket and then literally exploding and blowing up the Saturn V rocket, you know, over the ocean. But John Aaron, who was the ECOM, uh, electrical and uh, I don't remember exactly what the EE, uh, uh, electrical engineering communication uh, uh, console, <clears throat> he had seen a similar uh, pattern on his screen a year earlier in a simulation. And he, he figured out, he, and so when I, he saw that, when it happened, he, he, one of the reasons for doing simulations is, okay, so what do I do if, if this happens you know, for real? And, and uh, he figured out that there's a switch, SCE, Signal Conditioning Electronics. <clears throat> if you flip it to auxiliary, it resets everything. And so just as Jerry Griffin was thinking, okay, do I have to abort this mission and blow up the Saturn V? You know, uh, John, John Aaron, who's, <clears throat> who's 26 years old, says, uh, flight, tell him to switch SCE to AUX. And, and, and there's, a, there's a wonderful YouTube video about this. It's about three or four minutes long. If you, if you, if you check, uh, you know, Apollo 12 SCE, to AUX, one of my favorite videos. 
And so uh, tell them to switch SCE to AUX. And so, so this is the uh, John Aaron telling the flight director, but only the, only the Capcom can talk to the astronauts. So Aaron tells flight director and the flight director tells the Capcom. And so Capcom tells, you know, sends up the message to uh, Apollo 12. It says, try SCE to AUX, you know, and it says, NCE to AUX, what's that? <laughs> you know, they, they had no idea. And so finally, no, SCE to AUX. And so Alan Bean uh, knew where that switch was. And so he reached up over his shoulder and flipped the switch and everything came back. And they all started laughing. Then you can hear in the, in the YouTube video, you can hear, hear Pete Conrad just cackling. <laughs> He's laughing so hard. You know, and I thought, wow. Uh, you know, who knows what would have happened to the entire program if, if they had had to abort that launch and or mission and, and blow up the, the rocket. So uh, that's, that's, that's my favorite uh, 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 actual mission story about uh, Apollo 12. So yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting one. Yeah. And, and so now I, I, uh, Alan Bean, who I got to meet, uh, uh, passed away. Oh gosh, it's probably been about two years ago now, and I, I'm I'm good good friends with his wife Leslie. Another interesting story, uh, if you don't mind hearing interesting, what I think. So so at the Johnson Space Center, they have uh, it was it, they set it up after the Challenger accident where we lost seven astronauts. There's a, a memorial uh, grove of trees that when an astronaut passes away, they dedicate have a ceremony and dedicate a tree and put a plaque at the you know base of the tree. And so there's this beautiful grove of trees at the front part of the John Johnson Space Center of the Astronaut Memorial Grove. And every holiday season, like, like now, they put lights uh, around the trees. Uh, and they're all, they're all white, all white lights on every tree until recently except for one and it had red lights and of course you can see just people driving down NASA Parkway in front by the Johnson Space Center uh, you can see all these trees white with white lights and one and and I, I know you know I had friends who said I always wondered what why why there was one tree with red lights and so the story was Pete Conrad was known for a quote if you can't be good be colorful <laughs> and so so when they dedicated his tree, they decided forevermore to put uh, red lights on his tree and white on everybody else until his best friend, Alan Bean, passed away. And um, they, I, I can't tell you, I, I actually have it on my, my Facebook page and I'm not sure if it's on Twitter or Instagram, the whole story about, uh, uh, Alan, Alan Bean's uh, tree also got uh, multicolored lights. His, uh, again, they're all white except Pete's who's a red and Alan has the green and red and blue and yellow. And uh, so now there are two trees with, with, with colorful lights. And there's a wonderful story about that, that uh, his, his wife, uh, a widow, uh, Leslie Bean, tells uh, 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 
Yeah, friend me on Facebook and, and you can, or I, I, actually, I think you don't have to even friend me if you just go to my Facebook page and not, not too far down is a, sort of a story about the, the holiday lights and the astronaut memorial tree grove. And that is beautiful. That is beautiful. I love the fact that the story behind it, you know, the, the red uh, kind of no ornaments on the tree. So, so it's beautiful because we need to, you know, we as humans are very, you know, we are good in that way, you know, expression or, you know, our personal feelings towards, you know, again, that, that was, you know, uh, one of the saddest moments again with, uh, you know, what happened again with the program, with the special program, but, uh, you know, it's it's part part of that is is learning. Part of that is innovation. So part of that is is, is just life. You know, mm -hmm. so and uh, like the part of that is right now the Artemis when we, we talked about the Apollo mission. So now we're talking about the Artemis, the first woman who is going to be on the moon right now. And we're kind of planning to establish, create uh, probably some sort of a moon base again, which probably is going to be as far as a scene like on Wikipedia. I don't know how much you can trust Wikipedia, but it says that the private companies would be allowed to kind of create some sort of a, you know, habitat in, in those environments. So can you talk about the Artemis program? I mean, have you seen anything once you've been there? Because again, I know it's kind of brand new, you know, program and but people are really looking toward that. So maybe you can have a, maybe you can kind of express yourself and explain like what type of feelings and, and personal perspective you have about this mission. Yeah, and so that whole program has come up since I retired, but uh, a, a couple of things I can say. So back in 2000, I, I, I'm not sure I get the year exactly right, 2005, 2006, uh, the uh, Constellation program was put in place, which we were going to, to go back to the, NASA was going to go back to the moon. Uh, in fact, I had already been assigned to, there was, they had set up a, a lunar lander office to manage the development, you know, design development and, and production of whatever new lunar lander we were going to use. And I'd already been assigned to, to support that office. And then, uh, as you probably know, uh, the Constellation program was, was canceled. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news was that uh, in addition to the uh, uh, lunar lander and landing on the moon, part of the, the rest of the program was a, a big rocket, uh, which survived and is called SLS, you know, and Orion, which was the, uh, uh, people call it Apollo on steroids. You know, it's a, it's a similar to the uh, Apollo uh, capsule, but it's, it's a little bit larger, about one and a half times as, as large. And so that's Orion, that became Orion. And so instead of the constellation program with this rocket and capsule and going to the moon, it, it just became the Orion project and the SLS project. Uh, but they, you know, they survived and they're still, oh gosh, now, you know, many years later and we haven't launched either one of them. You know, thank goodness for, for SpaceX and, and hopefully soon Boeing. Uh, but yeah, so I, and so I was very excited about the thought of, you know, back in 2006, 2007, going back to the moon. Uh, I, I loved the idea and, and, and again, was very excited and was really hoping that, that we would make it. And so uh, obviously was disappointed 
when uh, the, the program was canceled, but at least was happy that uh, we managed to keep uh, Orion and, 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 and have SLS. And uh, uh, so I, I uh, yeah, I, 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 I love the thought too of finally uh, having, uh, you know, women more involved in the, 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 the space program and uh, uh, certainly the, the, they deserve to have one of them uh, walk, you know, being one of the first, when we do get back to the moon, being one of the first astronauts to, to, uh, to walk on the moon. So I, I'm very happy about that. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if, if I, I guess 2024 was supposedly the, the magical date and, you know, I, I, I'm not overly confident uh, that we will make it by then, but I would, would be very happy if we did. And, and, and so, you know, uh, along those lines, I know, and I don't follow too closely, but uh, I know that here recently uh, the Senate uh, approved the NASA appropriation bill on a, you know, 100 to nothing vote. And, you know, wow, how, how, how in today's world, how rare is that to have consensus, you know, uh, unanimous, 100 to zero, no, not a single senator voted against NASA's, I think it was $23.3 billion appropriation bill. And so that, boy, that really, really made me happy. Um, I, you know, that, that I understand the, the House version wasn't quite as, as generous, but, you know, back when I was uh, still working there, you know, so only four or five, six, seven, eight years ago, we were still in the teens, you know, of billions of dollars for a budget, 15, 16, 17 billion dollars. And so, you know, 23.3 billion, boy, that would be, that would be great if NASA actually gets that. They, they might actually be able to make 2024. Well, I think if we adjust, again, the amount of inflation, so it's probably the same or probably even less right now. Because again, if, we, if we're talking about our Artemis mission, which it costed like 35 billion. And if we talk, so 23.3 billion is going to be for another, for 2020 fiscal year, right? For the entire year. 2021. 2021, yeah. So yeah. so is there a specific, because again, maybe you, you kind of give us, as you mentioned, uh, specific insights. So what do you think NASA would be spending uh, this uh, th this money on? Any specific projects you think will be, uh, again, as part of that is going to be Artemis, Mars, or maybe any kind of future uh, missions that we're not aware of? Can, uh, can you share some of those? Uh, you know, I I, uh, I would just be guessing. Um, I, I I did not, and I guess it, it, because I knew that you know that was just the the Senate version, and and I don't know what the House version would be, and it would probably be some kind of compromise, and, and so I did not pay any attention to to how those funds were uh, were allocated because they are you know they 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 spe specify you know space science or or, you know, Artemis or, you know, Mars or, or wh whatever other, uh, you know, not, not only, I think, I, I'm not sure a lot of people understand that, you know, for example, people cannot donate or contribute money to NASA. If, 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 if they did, it would just go to the government, you know, because the way the, the federal government works in the U.S. is Congress is the only one who can tell NASA 
how much money they're going to spend and they don't like anyone else they don't even like anyone donating and why is that know, they, well, yeah what's the main reason behind that because you I know think, I, I think again I, I think like to get involved with that I I, I, I again I, I you know that's that's just the way you, it's set up and certainly I had no part part in yeah. that but I, but I think it's just wanting to maintain that control is that you know we tell you how much money you can spend and what you're going to spend it on and there's nothing no one nobody can can do anything uh, about that you know in fact the, the term was augmenting appropriations that was what was not allowed you know we, i use that often somebody would say well can you know can we do this for now or do that or can we get this money or you know no we can't augment our appropriations well, I understand. I understand if that money would be going to the roadworks. I mean, you can say, okay, we we just gonna keep this road a dirt road for the entire year or two, and that's perfectly fine. We we can live with that, but we cannot live without innovation in space because, as you probably guys, and maybe we can talk about again space innovation and how many different products and again the kind of the, the things that we have at home and use it for a date you know day-to-day -day basis and we take for granted because you know a lot of those came from again those space innovations and having space flights oh absolutely and, and i don't i don't have a list in front of me but yeah. but but, <laughs> but but you know things things like the, a, a few random things that come to mind uh you, you know fire protection equipment the the like like spacesuits so the the suits that firemen wear when they're putting out a fire uh you know were helped created by nasa and uh, um you know uh, at least in terms of satellites you know uh, the gps and communication cell phones um you know it is funny uh people a lot of people give nasa credit for things like uh teflon and velcro NASA did not invent those. NASA used them quite a bit, but we, we didn't have any part in, in inventing those. But uh, I think even even rubber tires for your car, uh, you know, NASA contributed to. So so you're absolutely right. There are any number of, of everyday kind of things that uh, NASA technology uh, you know, because it was being developed for use in space and, and was converted to to be able to use for everyday kinds of services and products and activities uh, on Earth that people, a lot of people have no idea uh, that there's a, a NASA connection. And of course, you know, most most of my world is not like that, but even people who live, uh, talking about the world at large, when when the shuttle space shuttle stopped flying in 2011 there are people who live in in this city who thought we closed you know and that just that just blows my mind that they're so unaware of what even with all of the the fabulous social media work that nasa i think yeah. does uh you know to promote the the space flights and the astronauts and and everything they're doing uh, you know to think that people who live nearby actually thought nasa had closed when we stopped flying the the space shuttle i guess they just forgot about the space station which is now you know i, I was just talking to you know we had our christmas zoom 
with family yesterday, you know, none of us traveled. And one of them, I have a, I don't know, she's a niece, I guess, who's, you know, a teenager. And I pointed out to her that, you know, every day and, and every other teenager on this earth, uh, who's, who's still a teenager has not lived a day of their life without someone in space. You know, we just had the 20 last, uh, last month, November, the 20 year anniversary of, of, uh, a full-time occupation of the, 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 the space station. Um, and, and of course, you, you know, NASA is doing, uh, continuing to work on Orion and, and supporting what SpaceX and Boeing are doing and any number of other uh, things. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just, uh, that's just what I'm involved in here in the, in the human space flight, you know, they're all, all the space science and, and uh, aeronautics and things at other NASA centers, uh, you know, so NASA as a whole, uh, you know, again, I, I tend to focus on the, you know, the crew, I won't say manned, you know, the crewed space flight, uh, but there's uh, any number of things uh, otherwise that the NASA agency is, is working on that have nothing to do, you know, the Jet Propulsion Lab sending rovers to Mars uh, or to the moon. Uh, so, uh, that, that is beautiful because again, the, like it's very interesting. For, first of all, coming back to the point that you mentioned that the person who who thought that you know once the space shuttle program was over in two thousand you know eleven, that person thought that the you know the government funded agency just got shut down, which is interesting. But can you talk again for the people in, you know because personally I think space shuttle program was something is 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 unbelievable you know i just love the way it looked i mean i never seen space shuttle flight you know uh yeah, personally yeah. myself i never seen a launch but i've seen again through the power of social media I've seen on youtube multiple times i think i've seen all of them and it's i mean it's unbelievable so as far as i hear the stories of the people who watch those so they said it's, it's something that is just you know mind-boggling but can you talk to the people again and explain like why you know space program just like space shuttle program got like why why it was over well so so back up a little bit i think i don't think a lot of people so the last apollo flight of course was uh, apollo 17 in 1972 uh and uh nasa had known for a little while that because of lack of desire to fund it that what otherwise could have been Apollo 18 and Apollo 19 were canceled. And in fact, the Saturn V rocket, at least for the most part, would have been the Apollo 18 rocket is at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, so, so that's a, you know, a, a real rocket, <laughs> a real Saturn V. Uh, you know, it never, it never flew, of course, but it was, it was all space hardware. Uh, and, you know, so that's kind of cool to, to get to see. Uh, but so I, I'm not sure a lot of people don't realize that as early as 1972, when the, the last year that we sent uh, guys to the moon, the space shuttle program was already being developed. I, in fact, I have a copy of what they call the uh, request for proposal. And you know, it's a, a paper document that NASA sent out to, uh, U.S. industry saying, "Hey, we're going. We plan to award a contract for the design, development, test, uh, production of this thing called the space shuttle, and we're going to be accepting proposals." 
and you know here are the instructions for submitting it and design requirements and that kind of thing and it's from 1972 so so it wasn't as if we stopped sending men to the moon in 1972 and then just you know waited around for five or six years of course started working on skylab or, or you know the apollo soyuz test project project and 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 skylab uh also in in the mid 70s but uh but 1972 they started early work on uh the space shuttle and so i i actually started at nasa in 1975 and spent a couple of years there before it was 1979 when i was assigned to the space shuttle uh, procurement office and so it was a group of eight or 10 or 12 of us. And so our job was literally to buy the space shuttle orbiter vehicles. And, and actually that's, that's, that's why I, I got this. Uh, it was a gift. We, uh, Rockwell International, I don't know if you can read it or if it's mm -hmm. backwards, yeah. uh, won that contract to build the space shuttle orbiter vehicles, which are, and now we're just talking about this, the external tank was built by Lockheed Martin and the main engines were built by another company and the solid rocket boosters by Morton Thiokol, but the space shuttle orbiter vehicle was built by Rockwell. And this was just a, a gift I got is for being part of that team. And of course, one interesting thing about this is it shows how old it is is that if you you have watched videos and seen photos of the external tank it's orange instead of white but i don't know if you know the first two space shuttle flights it was white and that's because they thought because it's super cold uh oxygen and hydrogen in there and they thought they needed to put this white paint on it to help protect, you know, for thermal protection from ultraviolet light that uh, could could cause uh, it to be more difficult to maintain that low temperature. As it turned out, uh, after two launches, they realized that they didn't need to paint it white, so they just left it its natural orange color. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, so I got to, yeah, and so this was two years, 1979, when I started working on that. That was two years before the first flight in 1981. And, and so actually, it, it is kind of interesting. My, my career, I started a few years before the first orbiter or space shuttle flight, and I retired a few years after the space shuttle, the last space shuttle flight. So. So, you know, it was the, the bulk of my career and I, I spent many of those 42 years working in the, the space shuttle program. Um, but I think in the end, you know, so by 2011, it had been flying for 30 years and we had lost two of them. Uh, and not that the the remaining ones were getting that old but uh uh you know i think 
uh, it was one of those things where we, we did realize that we needed to start thinking about what we were going to do next. And so uh, that was about the time, uh, again, the last shuttle flight was 2011. And I had mentioned earlier, you know, 2006, 2007, the Constellation program, where we were going to go back to the moon. And, and so anyway, we, we couldn't do both. Congress, the US Congress just would not give NASA enough money to, to do both. And so the decision was to, okay, well, you know, rather than just Although eventually we, you know, like I said, the Constellation program was canceled, although Orion and SLS survived. Uh, they decided to stop flying the shuttle so we would have enough money to, to continue working on uh, uh, Orion and SLS and, and that kind of thing. So I, I, th I think it, it was, you know, just a, a, a financial budget consideration that uh, uh, was the main reason the the shuttle stopped flying, but uh, yeah, lots and lots of people really, really hated to 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 see it go. Yeah, yeah. SDS one hundred thirty-five. That was the last one, two thousand. Yeah, one thirty-five. Yeah. yeah, so, so that, I think that was, July of two thousand eleven. Yeah. Yeah, so that was beautiful. Again, those moments were beautiful to watch. Again, part of that is, I mean, the, the Hubble telescope that was there because of the space shuttle, and now mm -hmm. we're again, because it used to do the maintenance. And now we're looking forward to, again, having James Webb, you know, telescope there, who's going to be changing the, the Hubble, who's been doing a phenomenal job all the time. So part of that, because again, as, as far as I've seen, uh, you've been working with Fred Hayes. Uh, I don't know if, sorry if I'm butchering maybe the, the surname, but uh, Fred Hayes, yeah. so he's, he's part of the Apollo 13 mission. He's been part of that. As, as far as I've seen, you've been part of that work on a space station programs also with him. Yeah, so that was that was actually so. Again, you know, going back to uh, I'd mentioned that uh, I guess I'm maybe still a teenager at Apollo 13. I, I had that temporary job with the TV networks, and so I was working for the TV networks when the oxygen tank exploded on Apollo 13 that night. And so, so along with everyone else, we stayed up through the entire night. And so I think that was the first night of my life that I I never went to bed. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, Fred Hayes was uh, the lunar module pilot on Apollo 13. And so I, I already had kind of a, felt a special connection to him as, you know, being there on site and part of all of that uh, huge activity that was going on for throughout, you know, all over the world covering what was going on with the astronauts as they were, you know, trying to get home safely on Apollo 13. And so that was, that was 1970. Um, and so then fast forward to uh, 1987 and Fred Hayes had, had retired from NASA around 1977 or 79 or something like that and gone to work for Grumman who had built the lunar modules actually. And so I think he, you know, he, he was very familiar with the, the company. And so I was working on a, a, a space a project to support the space station to put in place a contract, uh, uh, engineering support contract to support the space station program office. And it was, uh, so we, we had a, that was actually a year I spent at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, we had a, a competition among aerospace companies to be the company to provide that engineering support 
to the space station program office and Grumman won the competition. Uh, they're actually their only uh, competing company was TRW. But so when Grumman won the competition, they appointed Fred Hayes to be the new president of the Grumman Space Station Program Support Division. And so he and I negotiated this 10 year, almost billion dollars, it was 900 million, uh, 10 year billion dollar engineering support contract for the, the space station program. And, and again, he and I negotiated. And so he signed the contract for Grumman and I signed the contract for NASA. <laughs> and I still remember after we uh, finished the, the negotiation, you know, got a handshake on the, the final deal. And so for the first time we had some social time, we went, went out to dinner together. And I, of course I wanted to talk with him about Apollo 13 because you know, I, I'd never brought that up during our business sessions. And it became very clear early on that he had no desire to talk about Apollo 13. But it was interesting because he was very animated about talking about uh, being a test pilot. And he had actually uh, crashed in an airplane once. Obviously, he survived, but he rolled up. His, I remember he rolled up his sleeve and he still he showed me the scars, the burn marks on, on his arm that he, he still had. And so I got to talk with him about, uh, you know, being a test pilot. And then for the next year and a half, maybe two years or so, we worked together on that, uh, that contract. And so I was in his office at least once a week, uh, you know, for a, a management uh, tag up uh, meeting kind of thing. And so we got to be, you know, pretty good friends. And then I ended up taking a different job. This was at a a place called Reston, Virginia, in Northern Virginia, which is about 20 miles outside of Washington, D.C. And I ended up taking a job downtown NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. And they ended up changing the program and its space station program. And so the, the, what had been the program office in Reston, Virginia, was moved to Houston. And he moved back to Houston, where he had lived. And so it was kind of funny uh about so that was 1987 about 10 years later it was about 1997 i was at a i, I had moved back to houston i was at a high school football stadium watching a track meet because my, my son ran track in high school and i looked over in the stands and there's fred <laughs> and you know Oh, wow, what, what are you doing here? And it turned out he was there, one of his nephews or something like that was also on the track team. So I got to, my, my wife and one of my other sons was there. And so I got to introduce them to, to Fred. And so we, we kind of, you know, stayed in touch a little bit over the years. We're, we're still Facebook friends. Uh, in fact, I'm even Facebook friends with one of his granddaughters. Uh, but, uh, and I see him every once in a while. He, he still does a lot, a fair amount of, uh, you know, public speaking. And I, I mentioned the uh, Astronaut Memorial Grove uh, when they have a ceremony. He's, he's one of the, the guys who, who, because he lives nearby, you know, often volunteers to be one of the speakers uh, to tell stories about uh, the, the astronaut who they're dedicating the tree to. So uh, 
so yeah, I think that was one of the, definitely one of the highlights of my career was getting to work with and know and become friends with uh, one of the Apollo 13 astronauts, Fred Hayes. Mm -hmm. Got it. So that is, that is a beautiful story. So, I mean, all these unbelievable things that, I mean, you personally did your like 42 plus year career because plus, because you still continue to work with the NASA Alumni League at the same time while we're talking. So like, what would you consider kind of your biggest achievement so far in all these, in all these years that you got? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know that I ever thought about uh, an achievement. You know, again, people ask me about one of the highlights and, and, and I, I mentioned getting to work with Fred. Um, I guess, one of the biggest honors I got, I, I, NASA in 2010, I was awarded the Exceptional Service Medal, mm -hmm. which is one of the, the proudest moments in my entire life, you know, to think that someone at NASA thought enough of whatever it was I had done to award me an Exceptional Service Medal. I just did all, almost makes me emotional just thinking about it, you know, so that, that was certainly a, a proud moment. Um, I, I guess to answer your question, though, what was the greatest accomplishment? You know, um, believe it or not, one of the, uh, the <laughs> it was one of the most recent, so it's easy to, to remember or think about. One of the last things I did before I retired was, you know, when our, our astronauts were going back and forth to the space station, they had to go back and forth from Russia, Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. And we had a, to return them home, we had a Gulfstream three aircraft that would fly over there and pick them up and fly them home. But the plane was getting older and it didn't have a long range. It had to make multiple stops. And, and I remember one time I had a meeting uh, in fact, it was, you know, Doug and Bob on uh, this first, you know, Bob, Bob Bankin was in this meeting and the, the meeting was about, hey, we're having trouble with, we, we need to go pick up our astronaut from Kazakhstan in a couple of weeks and we're having some problems with one of the engines on the, the, the Gulf Stream 3 and we're not sure we're going to be able to get parts. So we may not be able to fly our plane over there. So we need to make some kind of contingency uh, you know, plans in case that plane can't fly. And so Bob was the chief of the astronaut office at the time. And I still remember in that meeting, you know, again, that was the first time I'd ever uh, had met him and his, 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 his face never, never changed. I mean, he was, you know, it was, it was a serious meeting, right? We've got a problem here and we need to figure out what to do. Uh, but I'll just never forget that, that look on his face is just, you know, consternation and, and never, never smiled or, or, you know, uh, changed the expression at all. Um, so anyway, uh, NASA decided, well, let's try to get a newer, better plane. Uh, we, we, we couldn't do that to fix this problem. And in fact, so they, they had me work on trying to, to maybe possibly charter an airplane, but, but it turns out that the part came in and they were able to, to fix the plane and, and it, it handled its mission okay. But again, long term, let's let's fix this and, and get a, a different plane. Not necessarily a new one, but a newer newer one. And so again, one of the last things I was assigned to do was uh, told to buy 
uh, a Gulfstream 5 airplane. It could be used, uh, but they wanted it by, this was uh, summer of 2016 when we were just about to have a presidential election in that November. And so they asked me for, they asked me for a schedule, you know, plan of when we would be able to get this and start using this airplane. And I, I managed an office of about 25 people and, and thank goodness, because we don't buy many airplanes. And one of the reasons is it's really, really hard uh, to get a, approval to buy one in the first place. Um, uh, but there was a woman who had, who was working for me, who had been involved in the purchase of an aircraft, you know, 15 years earlier, and she was still there. And so I at least had someone who had some idea, you know, how to do this process. And so she put together a schedule that said we could have the plane by February of 2017. And this, the guy, the director of flight operations said, no, 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 I, I, I want it by September, the end of our fiscal year, September 30th, uh, 2016, because we're gonna have a presidential election. And if a new president comes in and flips up, you know, turns over the apple cart, so to speak, and we don't have our plane, who knows when we'll get it. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I don't know if we can do this, but, you know, move up the schedule five months. And uh, anyway, again, I'll, I'll, to make a long story short, uh, we, with, a, with a lot of luck, and so they made me the source selection official, which meant that in the competition we would have, uh, it was actually brokers uh, submitting bids on, okay, here's the plane I have, here's how old it is, here's how many you know, hours the engines have on them, uh, here's how much I'll sell it to you for. I got to pick which plane to buy. And I, and I remember asking me, are you sure you don't want an astronaut to, to do this? And I said, no, 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 we want you to do it. And of course I was working really closely with, with an astronaut, uh, Greg Johnson, Gregory C. Johnson, there are two Greg Johnsons. But so I got to pick the plane and it was uh, actually the, the plane I picked was, had been a corporate jet for Nike and uh, $13 million, which was a, a deal because just a couple of years earlier, they'd been going for 30 or 35 million. And, and so we managed to get it and it flew into Ellington Field, which is about 10 miles from Johnson Space Center, I think September 29th. <clears throat> and, and again, you know, so many things had to happen just right and so much luck, which is just the opposite of what normally happens. There's always normally, you know, all kinds of things you aren't expecting go wrong and have to be done over. And so anyway, you know, and, and so of course now, thankfully we're, we're starting to get SpaceX and, and hopefully soon Boeing taking our astronauts back and forth. So we don't have to go to Kazakhstan to pick them up or take them over there. But, but in the meantime, in the last three or four years or so, you know, every time one of our astronauts would come home and they would land at Ellington and they usually had some social media or, you know, film or something. And I watched those aircrafts, uh, those astronauts walk off that plane. I thought, that's, that's the plane I bought. So, you know, that was, that was a good feeling. And so, uh, and again, accomplishing it on time uh, as the director of flight ops wanted it to happen, although it involved a lot of luck, you know, I felt really good about. So, so that's, that was maybe one of my, uh, one of the things I felt uh, best about in terms of having accomplished. 
Beautiful, beautiful. And I've seen the photo, which of course we're gonna post it up for you guys so you can see again Herb standing in front of the Gold oh, yeah. Stream Five that he purchased. So so that is yeah. awesome. That is awesome. I mean, you solved a pretty big problem, which of course, as I mentioned, hopefully, you know, these privately owned companies will solve that problem of traveling, you know, to Kazakhstan yeah. and big yeah. international. Yeah. Yeah. So well, and one one interesting thing about that too, uh, that the Gulf Stream Five, which I I'd never really thought much about. I, I was talking with one of the astronauts, and he said, "Well, you know, because I asked him, well, so can this one fly from Kazakhstan to Houston nonstop?" And he said, "Well, yes, it could." but it would have to fly over the North Pole. And, you know, you don't think about that. You know, you look at a map and you think, oh, well, it just goes, but no, you know, think of a globe. It, it would, it could actually go, you know, directly over the North Pole from Kazakhstan to Houston. But they decided, no, we don't, we don't want to fly over the North Pole. And so, so what they end up doing, I think they, it was either, I think Scotland, they make one stop. Uh, in from Kazakhstan to Scotland, and then from Scotland to Houston. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, so they still have to make a stop, but they had to make multiple stops be before in, in the Gulf Stream 3. Yeah. So, and, and I think the Gulf Stream like, 5 is probably the, the longest distance, unless they, they're planning to upgrade with the you know, Boeing 747 or something mm -hmm. like that, when, when it can go nonstop. Uh, probably, if it can, I don't know. I'm not a professional yeah. pilot. I don't know these things. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, definitely. So there is a lot of different things that we need to solve as, as people and make, you know, things uh, less complicated. But part of that, I want to transition maybe to a little bit different side, if you don't mind, and uh, ask you a question because, I mean, you know, you worked 42 years. And I'm just going to continue to mention that because, uh, like, there are people who work in that long, but there is not many of us, you know. And first of all, it's a it's a big enough problem and obstacles that we have to go through to get into NASA, especially now, as I mentioned, maybe the, the process uh, of doing so, which maybe a little bit different, maybe easier, who knows? But, but you know, it's, it's tough and you have 42 years of experience, you know, working there as well. So I think it would be not, you know, a shame not to ask you the question uh, that follows, which is, you know, a lot of people ask about that, speculate it. It's been in the movies for, you know, many, many years. and. We create hundred billion, you know, dollar worth, hundred million dollar worth movies about that. Is about you know extraterrestrial life form and you know things are being out there. So, what's your personal take? And maybe you can answer the question: If NASA or somebody found anything else, uh, you know, besides us being on this planet? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a, <clears throat> a good and interesting question too, because I have been asked that. <clears throat> you know, people think, well. You, know, you you would know, right? I mean, they yeah. would they would trust you. <clears throat> and I, yeah, so I I feel like after that long and have like I said, I've worked at three different sites and visited every one of them and know hundreds of NASA employees, including you know astronauts who who have you know, been in space and and also many other senior NASA uh, officials, including some of the NASA administrators like Charlie Bolden and I met Jim Bridenstein here recently, who's the current NASA administrator. And I feel very comfortable in saying that there is there is no secret, there's no hidden, uh, uh, you know, knowledge or, or, or vision or, or sighting of uh, or, or uh, facts about. Uh, any extraterrestrials visiting uh, the the Earth or or being seen in space, 
I will say, however, that, and again, I'm not an astronomer, uh, but just given the sheer magnitude and immenseness of our universe and the billions of stars and planets, I am absolutely convinced without a doubt in my mind that somewhere out there, there is life. Uh, 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 now, and, and it may or may not be human, you know, it may, may look like, you know, uh, ET or, you know, some who knows what kind of form, uh, you know, some other living being uh, other, other than, you know, a, a small animal of some kind, you, you know, uh, an intelligent being might look like. Uh, but I, 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 it's hard for me to, to, you know, grasp in my mind that something like this universe could exist without, you know, and, and we're, we're, we're the only intelligent life in, in the entire universe. That just doesn't make any sense to me, <laughs> right? I, I will say, however, also that uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any chance of intelligent life in this solar system. Uh, and, 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 I mean, you know, I think we've, we've uh, with, with the Hubble and, and other kind of, uh, uh, you know, missions sent out to other planets, we've seen enough and know enough about their makeup. I think what only, only the first three, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, or, or even terrestrial, you know, or, or other than gas, you know, those, those, uh, you, you couldn't live on, you know, J Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus or, you know, they're just, they're just huge balls of gas. Um, but, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, but, uh, and, 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 you know, I'll, uh, yeah, and, 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 and I don't, it, so I didn't quite, uh, answer. I'm not sure if you ask. You know, do I think extraterrestrials have visited Earth? I I, I think no, because why? Why? You know, if if you think about what it would take, the technology and, and intelligence to be able to to fly from one one solar system, because I don't think it exists in this one, to another solar system and find us here and then just, you know, keep going or, you know, not stop and try to interact in, in some way, you know, just hover over some lights and then take off again. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I, again, just common sense kind of things to me. Uh, I, I, that, that uh, I, I just, I can't process that. Yeah, I do, I do understand because like, but just looking at the, if we're going to look at the Drake equation, and again, the fact that you mentioned the universe is so vast and we have like universe, which is expanding at the, at the rate of the universe, you know, faster than the speed of light while we're talking at the same time, you know, since, since the, the Big Bang, or at least as far as we know, and again, we are talking about, again, the life forms in our solar system, which, of course, it could be not. Again, I think we have some of the NASA, uh, NASA's missions that are going to be going to Europa, one of the mm -hmm. Jupiter's moons. 
because of the kind of thick ice crust, there could be something underneath the water, as, as the fact they speculate. They talked about mm -hmm. Venus phosphine uh, for a minute. Uh, and again, so, so again, it could be there, but now we're just kind of guessing. You know, we, we still don't know and we're still trying to figure things out at the same time. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But uh, another thing that I want to ask you is, again, being part of that, uh, you know, journey and again, spreading your message. And first of all, you know, NASA Alumni League, that's for the people to watch. Uh, and of course, we're going to put it up on the, on a, in the show notes, the link that you can go and check it out. Can you talk about, again, any upcoming events? Uh, of, um, and I'm sure they're going to be kind of on Zoom, probably just like this. Any type of events and what are you going to be talking about in these events? Um, well, yeah, so uh, we do have uh, mainly what the NASA Alumni League does. Well, I, I'm not sure if I can say mainly what we do, because we do, we do multiple things and we, they're all important to us. But one is, is just... Uh, you know, a, a social kind of thing. It's an opportunity. People who, you know, going all the way back to Apollo, uh, you know, astronauts and flight directors are, are members of our, our league. And, and so we, we have uh, social get-togethers every once in a while, and, and, uh, or at least did. Um, and we have a monthly program where we try to bring in uh, well, we don't try to, we do <laughs> bring in a, a speaker, just any, any wide variety of, of subjects um, uh, for the, uh, and, and so we did those in person, of course, <laughs> until March or so of, of this year. Uh, and then we started doing them on Zoom. And, and actually, I, you know, I, 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 w I wish I could, but they, they don't want us to, you know, publicly spread the, the uh, you know, knowledge of, of uh, you know, the, the details because yeah. I, I think we might have too, too large of a crowd. So, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I, I can't really invite the world to join us on those Zooms as much as I might like to, but uh, we, we've had, we recently had one uh, from someone who worked on one of the the Mars rover projects, uh, it turned out one of, one of the interesting ones. It was one of my early ones after I had retired. One of the, my first uh, meetings, we had uh, Amy Ross, who works. Uh, is kind of the lead space spacesuit developer at the Johnson Space Center, and so I'm sitting there in this room with her and she's got some gloves and some other fabric and talking about developing spacesuits and and uh, again her name is Amy Ross and and it finally clicked with me the guy sitting right behind me Jerry Ross an astronaut who had I think he may still hold the record for most spacewalks and it finally clicked to me that wait a minute that's his daughter <laughs> and I thought how perfect is that the guy who has done, you know, the most or the longest number of hours of spacewalks in U.S. space history, Jerry Ross, his daughter is the one who's developing the spacesuits. And so that, you know, just one example of how, how cool things can happen yeah. here at the Johnson Space Center. She has a perfect mentor, I'm, I'm pretty sure. 
right, in, yeah. the, in this specific case. So again, uh, last question, because I do understand. So first of all, I really thank you again for coming over today and sharing your personal values and, you know, why people should be part of this. And again, you know, there's there's lack of still attention, I think, that goes towards, you know, like space agencies, including NASA. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because like what you've been doing and you continue to do again through, you know, Alumni League right now, it's it's very important because I'm, I'm sure you're doing for the similar reasons, which, you know, you're looking right now with the younger people to add more value and kind of help them to understand why space should be important. So on that note, I mean, how do you help uh, your, because I know you have children too, so how do you help your children, again, to follow their own personal dreams? And do you talk about space and make that important kind of one of the priorities? And what would they say for the people who are listening then they're new and they're looking to get involved with these projects as well? <laughs> well, I, I have to say it's interesting that, uh, yeah, so I have two sons, <clears throat> but they're, they're now... Actually, they just had birthdays last month. They're 28 and 31. And uh, neither of them are in the space industry. Uh, you know, they had uh, different uh, passions, interests, if you will. And I certainly would never, as, as much as it means to me and as much as I love it, would ever even think about trying to force them, you know, to, to do something just because it was what I thought they should do. So, so anyway, one is a, a, a he got his uh, master's degree in uh, computer science from MIT. And so he's a senior software engineer now for a company in Boston. And my other son is in graduate school and uh, in San Diego uh, studying uh, I'm not sure I remember what they called it, uh, you know, in, intelligent kind of military intelligence kind of, you know, uh, kind of thing. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so I do, uh, you know, I mentioned, I, I make myself available as, as much as possible uh, in person, at least previously, uh, or on site now, you know, to anyone who, if they have, and especially children, uh, kids or a classroom uh, who would be interested in hearing uh, about NASA or space. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever turned anyone down. In fact, in, in one time someone asked me, uh, uh, we, were, we were talking about me doing a, a presentation uh, with, uh, I think, a small number of, of children. And I said, well, so how much do you charge? No, oh, I've, I've never charged anyone, and I never will. You know, I I don't do this for the money. I don't I don't need. Thank goodness, I don't I don't need the money, uh, and so I I just do it because I I love doing it, and and because again I want to encourage uh, again, especially children at as young as age as possible. And so one of the, I do a lot of volunteering, and so one of the the things that one of my favorite organizations is a, an organization called Girl Start. And it's based, it was based in Texas, uh, Austin, and, and, and a presence here in Houston. And it's the idea is to get young girls from you know, kindergarten to 12 uh, interested in STEM activities. And so they have all kinds of events. And one of the first ones I volunteered at was at a, a local school. And there must have been 
300 you know young girls between like the ages of six and 12 uh or seven and 12 or something eight and 12 something like that and spent the whole day doing experiments and projects and and hearing about uh, stem and it was it was awesome it was wonderful and so i went back and and have you know continued to do other volunteers in fact if you go to my my twitter page my 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 top pinned tweet is is about that uh, that day uh, supporting volunteering for girls start uh and um Recently, in, in the United Kingdom, Kingdom, I, I became associated with a, a website called MajorTim.Space, and uh, it's, it's actually a, a young woman, I don't think she's 18 years old or something like that, who started this website and, and uh, uh, you know, is mainly for, for children. And so she recently had a, a video contest and, and she asked me to be one of the celebrity judges. And so I got the, the youngest ages from like, I don't remember now, six to nine or something like that. And I, so they submitted, you know, short three minute videos and I got to, to pick which I thought were the best. And, 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 and so that I, I loved that, I loved. And, and so now I've become friends with these. And, and so it turned out that, you know, I was amazed at the, the quality of the, the video and the interest and the passion of these six-year-olds. And so now I've become Twitter friends with, you know, them and their families. And, and, and here recently there was a, in Ireland, this is one of my favorite stories. There was a, a young boy who has some kind of a disease, uh, brittle bones, and he was on a, a Christmas, a, a, a late night TV show in, in Ireland. And they asked him, and he was, you know, in a wheelchair. He could actually walk, but he spends most of his time in a wheelchair. And they asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. He's like eight years old, I think, or something like that. And they, he said, well, you know, do you want to be an astronaut? He said, well, I'd like to be an astronaut, but I can't because I have brittle bones. And he said, oh, well, you know, what, what do you want to do instead? He says, well, I want to be a Capcom in mission control. And and the interest uh, that that this young boy got from that tv show and so they <laughs> ended up contacting me and so they the the bbc breakfast uh show in i guess based in london uh the one of the producers sent me a note saying hey would you do a video for for adam and so so i said yeah you know and, and of course i think you know to think I've, I've got to the point where i can just create my own video now, I, you know, wow, I never, 10 years ago, I never would have dreamed that I could, could do that. So, so anyway, I, I, you know, that, and she only gave me a couple of hours because they needed it to, to put together a program for, for their breakfast show the next morning. And they're six hours ahead of us, right? Uh, and, and so, so I put this video together and, and sent it and, and she just, she just asked for, I think, 30 seconds or something like that. And it, I, I tell people it, it was, and so, uh, so I made a, they showed the video on the BBC breakfast show the next morning. And, and I tell people, I'm glad they only asked for 30 seconds because I was just about to get tears in my eyes as I was finishing speaking. I, you know, so emotional about how this young kid wanted to, to, to be a, a Capcom at NASA when he grows up and that, that they asked me to help, you know, encourage him 
to do that. And uh, so anyway, I, I just I can go on and on and on about the ways that I'm looking for to to, like I said, especially the young kids to encourage them uh, and, and not just STEM, certainly that's one way, but again, you know, I'm living proof that a business person can, can have a wonderful career at a place like NASA too. Uh, I, I will say, in fact, speaking of that, I looked at the numbers from a couple of years ago and, and about a third of the employees at NASA are engineers but about another third of them are, are, you know, what I would call business, you know, finance people. And then the other third are, you know, scientists and doctors and astronauts and that kind of thing. So, so we're a pretty good, a pretty good chunk of, of NASA employees too. So, so for all of you out there listening, you, you know, certainly I encourage you to, to be involved in STEM, but if that's not your passion, there are other ways to, to get jobs at, at NASA than, than STEM. Beautiful, beautiful. So I, I love the story about making the video and, and that's coming back to the point of carrying the, the video recorded cassettes through the six lane traffic to <laughs> now recording the, the videos via Zoom, you know, what, what, a, what a turnaround, like 17 right, degrees. Right. So, so that is beautiful. I mean, I love the story because, you know, stories are so powerful and it, it feels like and it looks like you have so many more of these. I mean, we're talking about 42 years of your personal journey, which continues right now, you know, with NASA. So the title fits really good, you know, with lifetime with NASA and you're spending that life again, educating people. And now the kids, which we see like personally, the young generation is getting a lot of interest into space and exploration and all these different projects that are happening. So, so I do definitely encourage you for you guys who are watching and listening to this episode, get in contact with Herb. You're going to, of course, find, as I mentioned, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and the rest of the social media including with with the rest of the links for the websites so going get in contact with this man again if you have anything going just like you mentioned major tim dot space maybe have a similar organization or something that relates to you know teaching kids about space and what's happening and you know so it looks like again herb as, as he mentioned he would spare the time again to educate those people so so that is beautiful so for you guys uh if you shared this episode with a friend that's all i'm asking for today because this is, uh, I mean, it's incredible, you know, the amount of inspiration, the stories, the passion, and, you know, the reasons why people should be part of this, you know, big picture, which, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So if you just shared this episode again during these times, it's definitely will brighten up their personal day and will inspire them to do and get involved with some of these projects. And again, her for you personally is just, uh, I'm, I'm super grateful again that you came on in the show today and share your incredible journeys because personally, I love the journeys. You know, I love the stories and I, I love, you know, listening to those, which again, you, you have a bunch of those. So I, again, I really appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. And, and thanks again for inviting me. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So again, guys, uh, make sure to share this episode with your friends. And as always, I'll see you next time. And until then, don't forget to keep exploring. Thank you.